Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Brian Leach. Brian is the CEO and founder of Ibotta, the leading cashback rewards app in the US, which he started in 2012. Since then, Ibotta has generated some incredible numbers, over 45 million downloads, has paid out over 1.2 billion in cash rewards, and has earned a valuation well over a billion dollars as well. Prior to Ibotta, Brian is a recovered lawyer, having been a partner at Bartlett Beck and a Supreme Court law clerk to Justice David Souter. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Would love to hear a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey from lawyer to starting Ibotta and ultimately building one of the unicorns in Colorado today. Sure. You know, I kind of fell into being an entrepreneur. I think there's no one path to becoming one. In my case, I went all the way down the rabbit hole of becoming a lawyer, partner at a law firm, trial lawyer, and I enjoyed many aspects of that. I especially enjoyed the, the actually showing up in court and handling witnesses and so forth. But over time, I realized that what I was really passionate about was that presentation aspect, the storytelling aspect. And the research and writing bit was not so inspiring to me. And so about four years into my partnership experience, I decided I needed to look for another line of work that was heavier on those things that I really found inspiring. It was a bit of a crisis. You know, I had spent all this time and money. I had law school debt. Uh, I didn't go to business school. I, I didn't have any technical abilities. So it was difficult to convince my wife and others that this was a sensible career. Uh, all, you know, it wasn't a pivot. It was like a complete ending of one professional career where you have a very safe job and, and taking a, a major pay cut and, and being a first-time entrepreneur. But I just uh, sort of fell in, fell forward, made all the mistakes you can make, whether it was fundraising or hiring, and, and eventually, fortunately, found a bunch of folks who really knew how to build consumer technology. And I learned from them. Many of them are still here at Ibotta. And over that decade, we've figured out what the market need is and built products that are better and better fit that need. And from a standpoint of leadership and management, I mean, this is really my first rodeo. So like I said, learning about my own leadership style, what's good about it and what's bad about it, how I show up in group settings and how I need to change that in times and just becoming more self-aware as a leader has all been part of that journey. But it's been overall an exhilarating experience. When you decided to leave your partnership with law firm, did you jump in just saying, I'm going to start a company, I don't know what it's going to be? Or did you leave with this particular idea in mind that you knew you had to go after? Well, so I started sort of manically cycling through mostly terrible business ideas around April of 2011. Uh, I was sitting on a plane and I watched a woman taking a picture of a receipt uh, from a conference that she and I had attended down in Brazil. And I started thinking about all the purchase information that's on our physical receipt and how you could make interesting things with that if you could digitize that information and make it more available. That's why the company's called Ibotta. It's like I bought a bag of groceries. It's just a, a really bad pun, basically. But there were maybe five or six other ideas I was, I was kicking around at the time. I won't even repeat them because they're so embarrassingly terrible. But basically, you know, I've traveled through like a five-day period where I get really psyched. I'd look into it, research it, tell a few people, and then I would realize, 
okay, this is no business model or it's already been done or there's some major problem with it. But in that process, I kept coming back to this idea relating to a, a cashback rewards mobile app that would work everywhere because I thought it was an interesting way to be in the giving away money business. You know, you could really help people and potentially help advertisement become more efficient and performance-based. And that stuck with me, but I didn't have the right to just quit my job because I didn't have the money. I, did, I needed to find a way to pay myself a salary in the new venture that would be enough so I could stay in my house and pay the mortgage, keep my kids in the public school district. So my wife and I had a kind of very specific understanding about what I needed to achieve in terms of fundraising before it would be aligned with our values for me to leave. And that was a, a weird kind of eight month process of living a double life, practicing law, traveling to all these places I was representing clients in Japan, China, London. You know, I had an international arbitration practice, but on the side, I was kind of hustling and, and, and pitching this business. So I was living this very burning the candle at both ends existence. Finally, after all of the venture capital firms had passed on me and, and rejected me, I managed to find 51 angel investors in my network who would invest. And I amassed enough money in small checks that I knew that I had enough money to safely transition. And so uh, it took about until really January of 2012, about six, seven months before I really officially took the plunge. I love that, Brian, that, that story. And I knew that a little bit about the, the famously messy cap table of Ibotta or the long cap table, at least. <laughs> and you know, love to just get your take on this for entrepreneurs, you know, particularly in this environment that are maybe struggling to raise. What's your take on having a ton of angels versus a VC fund? If you could do it over, what, what would you do? I wouldn't do it differently. Honestly, I think that the benefit of the approach that I took was that you get a lot of people who are motivated to help you, a lot of people with a network and connections to make introductions. I mean, 51 people uh, who each have their own Rolodex and, and are proud of the story. You also get no one who owns more than 1% of the company. So it's possible to have a much more founder-friendly term sheet. So being able to make sure that you have rights that you wouldn't normally have as a common shareholder that then persist, if you can kind of make them stick early in the company, they become a precedent for later rounds. I also like the fact that I got rejected by the venture capitalists because it, it made me better, maybe stronger. It taught me why I was failing. And as painful as it was, had I just gotten a check from the first VC I went to, I wouldn't have gotten all the advice and benefit and sort of insight that all those other VCs gave me as they were busy rejecting me. It really is like free advice. The process of getting rejected by a venture capitalist should be very valuable to you. So in that sense, I liked it. And I also like the fact that later on, we were able to go back to those angels, raise more money from them. What I didn't like about it is it's incredibly emotionally stressful to have friends and family have money in your business even if you tell them don't invest any amount that you wouldn't be willing to lose, you still feel a sense of special obligation in a way you wouldn't to, you know, range or some other VC where you're like, well, you know, they, they know they're going to lose most of the time, but they win some, lose some. I guess I'm one of the, you know, high percentage of losses and, and they'll get over it. When it's your college roommate or your father or your father-in-law, you feel a special motivation, which isn't right for every single person. You also have to make sure that all of those angels are accredited investors who meet the definition, have enough income. Because if you don't do that, you can get into trouble with the blue sky laws and preemption of state blue sky laws. So if you do it the right way and you're willing to hustle, I mean, I probably had to talk to 100 people to get those 51 to say yes. 
it's an avenue. But that was mostly because I had no background as a business person, didn't go to business school, had no savings, wasn't investing in the company, was still working at another job. These are not exactly uh, signals of excellence to the venture capital community. So what I had was uh, a great network that I was able to lean on. Brian, I'm sure those 51 people are pretty happy with the decision they made you know, today, given what you built with Ibotta. So before we jump into the biggest lesson, I can't think of a better person to ask this next question to. How has the Colorado tech ecosystem changed over the last decade? And what are you excited about going forward here? Oh, it's changed so much. When we were around in 2012, we were at the very first Denver Startup Week. There was maybe a few hundred or a thousand people, not not 20,000. We were one of maybe seven stops on the pub crawl among startups. You'd go to the Boulder Denver New Tech Meetup and you'd see the same five people every time. Everybody would ask you the question whenever you would tell them about your company. Oh, is is Brad Feld an investor? And you'd say, oh, you know, no, Brad's not. Oh, hmm. (laughs) i.e. that means you're no good. If you're from Colorado and you don't have Brad behind you, you you know, you're no good no matter what your area of business is, they would say, oh, you're up in Boulder. You must be up in Boulder. I've heard of Techstars. I've heard of Foundry. And I'd say, no, I'm down in Denver. And they'd kind of get a furrowed brow like, Denver? If you really knew what you were doing, you'd be up in Boulder. That's where all the real tech people are. These days, the locus of of energy and investment has become Denver. I would say the two communities have really blended from an entrepreneurial ecosystem perspective. There are capitals flowing in at every stage at record levels. I mean, private equity firms, growth funds, of course, acquisitions. You look at what Ping Identity has done in terms of going public, getting acquired by Toma Brava. And it's a completely different moment than the one that Andre used to describe. You know, he used to describe how companies here were like a bait ball uh, for the large shark to come in and buy them for, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars. And they never really achieved uh, profitability and standalone, uh, you know, billion dollar valuations. Now you have companies that have gone public uh, or, have could go public whenever they wanted to, or that have gotten acquired for billions of dollars, like Data Logics, uh, like Ping, and you have, I think, a real shakeup from the pandemic in terms of just talent lo- relocating to Colorado because they just want to live here. You know, ever since uh, whether it was Gusto or Palantir, I mean, these companies have been moving here since before the pandemic, and that's only accelerated in the in the last few years. So those are just some of the changes. I think the community is becoming more diverse. I think the community has got a broader, deeper set of talent on the consumer tech side. It used to be that, that we were really the only consumer tech uh, company in the Colorado ecosystem of, of uh, that was really growing. That's changed. So all of that has made it a much more exciting place to do business. Yeah, we, we completely agree. And we, we see that every day from the capital and the talent and just amazing people continuing to move here. Um, is there one company in particular that is growing here in Colorado that you're excited about? There are so many in the headlines you read about. I'm intrigued by the supersonic jet company, Boom. Uh, I read about that and I, I kind of can't believe that's happening here. All of the aerospace developments that are happening here are really amazing to track. And then this company, Amp Robotics, uh, that, that I, I learned about through y'all is really, really cool in terms of being able to do something with, with robotics that really helps waste management, helps the environment. And they're based up in, in Louisville. So there's a number of companies that I, I admire. Some of them don't even know that I'm admiring them from afar. But these days, you know, there are, there are many, many companies. You know, Eric Remmer, I remember talking to him when he was at Pay Simple. Now they're a public company doing great. And so uh, I, I like to, to keep up with folks who are in their second generation, like John Levesay up at Pro's Closet, 
after his run with with Craftsy, or uh, for that matter, Eric Rosa, who's now chairman of the board at CrossFit after running Data Logics. So people are going on to become angel investors and and advisors in ways that I think is really really cool. Yeah, Brian, it's really gratifying to see what's happened. I think I was one of those five people at the New Tech Meetup with you <laughs> back, back in the day. So it's nice to see some some new faces at, at all the events. Uh, let's jump into to why we're here. Would love to hear. Uh, you've learned a lot already. You've talked about, but to hear your biggest lesson you've learned in your career, how you learned it, and how you apply it today. Yeah, I think the biggest lesson is that the difference between a great entrepreneur and a good entrepreneur is not measured in the size of their company, the valuation of their company, uh, or even the success as measured in a lot of ways of their company. It's really measured in what obstacles they've been able to overcome, how they've been able to rally a team of people together to stay you know, to stay together and focused on a vision through thick and thin. You know, you think about, I often use the analogy that the best pilot is not the person who can fly with the fewest days of turbulence. It's the person who can handle the most situations so that when something goes wrong, they can kind of salvage things. That's, I think, what I've, what I've learned. I, I came into this thinking, oh, well, I want to be like these famous luminary entrepreneurs. Um, there are tailwinds in your business, headwinds in your business that have nothing to do with your skill as an entrepreneur. Uh, maybe you selected a great area to focus on or there's a great uh, fundamental insight that you have. And that sometimes happens. But so much of it is, is managing the emotional landscape of yourself and your team to, to sit with distress and discomfort and an apparent calamity and disaster and kind of hang in there just a little bit longer until things get better. Because it is not like the kind of huge parabolic increase, you know, exponential growth, hockey stick. It's much more like kind of an upward trending sine curve where there's a lot of things that are really good happening and then terrible happening. And so you go home and, you know, how was your day, honey? It's like, well, it, there were nine terrifyingly atrocious things that happened and there were 11 really positive, you know, might be really good things that happened. So it's a, it's a world of kind of managing your expectations and your emotions. And then once you have that ability and, and more self-awareness about what makes you anxious and how you manage that anxiety, how do you model that and confer that and, and create a sense of purpose and hope and relevance in the work so that you have the best chance, uh, you give yourself the best chance to ride through as many of those downturns. And one of them may take you out, right? It might be the pandemic and there's just nothing you could do and it just bowled you over. The test of a great entrepreneur is, how many of those cycles can you withstand and how much can you get out of you know, the thesis area that you happen to be working in? Brian, that, that resonates with me. I always described entrepreneurship as taking two steps forward and 1.9 steps backwards, right? <laughs> and you just got to get up and do that every day or every week and move forward a little bit. We'd love to hear maybe one or two specific stories of you know, one of those 1.9 steps back that then resulted in the the two steps forward that you've experienced while building Ibotta? Sure. I mean, we could do 10 podcasts right. on the, the clenchy moments at Ibotta. Uh, in fact, my wife has a, she, she sort of recognizes a certain look on my face and is like, all right, I'll book a reservation at North in Cherry Creek because that's the restaurant we go to specifically when something terrible is happening at the company and we need to kind of talk Brian down off the cliff. So, so often it happens that we have a designated restaurant for it. But to give you some examples, you know, early on in, in Ibotta, we were using Twilio to send text messages to from users to other users to to refer people to download our free app. And we were using a short code to do that because it was more efficient. And we didn't know about the existence of this piece of legislation called the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the TCPA. 
Well, it turns out the TCPA prevents you from, it's like robocalling is prevented under it. It also applies to text messages. And someone filed a, law, a class action lawsuit, uh, which is $500 per every text message that you send. And so we get this says, you know, you've been robo texting me and, and so forth. And you owe us an estimated $800 million based <laughs> on how many text messages you sent. At this point, we have, you know, like $85,000 in the bank. And this is, you know, six months into the company. And I, I'm supposed to be a lawyer by training who's supposed to know this stuff. And, and I sort of casually go over to Luke and I'm like, um, about how many text messages have we been have we been sending? Is it like 10 million or is it like, you know, 10? No, it's closer to 10 million. Right. Mm, great. So, you know, that's a moment where you're like, well, it was fun while it lasted. But then you realize, oh, no, we're fine. You know, we're not actually robo sending these. It's individual consumers selecting an individual recipient to send them to. It just appears that way from the way it's being delivered. And once we explain that, we settled the case for like a thousand dollars and we moved on. You know, but in the five days before we learned that it was you know, seeing your life flash before your eyes and thinking, you know, how are we going to explain this to my investors and to my I'm going to go crawling back and beg for my old job back. I mean, that's just one example. There have been so many times where I've thought we were really, how are we going to get out of this one? Whether it's needing that extra, you know, product to really hit or that extra investor to be inspired to come in at just the right time or managing a pandemic uh, at a time when that was really, really challenging for our business. Super helpful to some businesses, definitely not for ours, at least in the short run. So yeah, I think the thing that nobody talks about when you become an entrepreneur is how much it is about managing the emotions, the anxiety, the fear, the self-doubt, how you manage that is so much different than when you're a tenured lawyer or for that matter, you know, in, in another form of professional service where your client may or may not get the best outcome, but you get paid either way. When you are riding, you know, with everyone and, and, and you're responsible for 800 people's jobs and benefits as we are here, it, it is a great uh, burden. And so it's, it's a lot of working with coaches and therapists just to figure out how to hang in there emotionally and psychologically with, with that much pressure on you all the time. So, Brian, I, you know, as the CEO, you have to learn how to not just manage your own emotions, right, through those ups and downs and what, you know, might feel like existential moments for the company. But as the CEO, you also have to manage the emotions of everyone in the company and set the right tone of both urgency, but also we can get through this. How have you learned to do that over the years? Yeah, I think. Through trial and error, I mean, any first-time entrepreneur that tells you they had it dialed right away is probably lying to you. I mean, there were things that I was good at coming into this job. I think as a former trial lawyer and stage actor, I was a good presenter. I'm a good storyteller. And so I can share out a vision of, of where we're going and get people to buy into that through through narrative. And I, I lean on that. But there's things that I didn't know how to do. I didn't know how to manage teams of people to set them up for success, how to coach them. There's a whole bunch of learning that had to go on to do that. I mean, I think that the most important thing is to remain an authentic voice to your company. If you try to pretend that you have everything figured out, which is a temptation you have initially with your board, you never really tell them any of the bad news because you don't want them to sort of see behind the curtain or think maybe they should replace you. It's so tempting to kind of oversell basically everybody around you because that's what you're used to doing out in the market. You got to kind of actually lead with vulnerability and authenticity and 
acknowledge that you haven't figured something out or you did something wrong or apologize or acknowledge that somebody else had the right idea. I think the more you do that, the more human you are, the more people sort of believe that you, you are what you say you're about. And it comes down to your actions in, in the moment. Um, are you screaming you know, at people? Are you throwing things or are you, look, let's not point fingers. Let's work the problem. We'll do a postmortem later. It'll be a blameless postmortem. Are there approaches you can take to letting other people talk in a room instead of filling it with your own voice, which is something I did a whole hell of a lot in the first quarter of my life? How does that create a sense of joint buy-in? So it's not just, well, he wants us to follow the great messianic leader, wants us to follow his vision from the tablets that he has from God. You know, it's no, no, no. We all co-created this strategy and this implementation. We have goals we're achieving and a lot of local autonomy. So you just build a sense of buy-in from more than just yourself. And I think the paradoxically, the more you admit you're wrong and the more you admit you don't have all the answers, the more people want to follow you. That's great, Brian. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you, you've you've ridden the roller coaster now for for ten plus years. So you're you're a pro. You've seen all the these ups and downs. You've talked about. It's interesting, especially first time entrepreneurs like you going through this for the first time. Uh, whether it be COVID, whether it be now, right, where it's a much tougher fundraising environment, feels a little bit like a tech tech downturn, and the first time a lot of entrepreneurs have seen that. What advice do you give to these folks that you know they're coming to Chris and I saying you know things don't seem seem as rosy as they did six months ago? What do I do? Yeah. Look, I mean, first of all, validate that emotion. If you're feeling scared or frustrated, so is everybody else. There's nobody else out there who's who's thrilled that you know all their comps are off by 50%. This is just part of, of a business cycle. But I think what you can take heart in is that if you build a product that people really, really want, that really does have fit with the market need, eventually you will prevail. Uh, at the end of the day, if you have a business and not just a technology, but you have a, a, a plan for making money uh, that, that is fundamentally sound, uh, you don't need to sell your company right now. And if you're raising your money, you know, the amount you're diluting is ultimately irrelevant. It's percentage points here and there. What matters is that you're still going to be in business 10 years from now, and you're still going to be adding value and advancing the mission of your company. There are things that are outside your control in business that naturally creates anxiety. If you care greatly about something and you have no control over it, that's very scary. I mean, if you don't like turbulent flights, for example, it's because you don't want to die, but you have no control, right? So that, that's how it feels sometimes, a turbulent flight. I think you just have to focus on the things that you can control. In that context, it might be your breathing, and that's about it. In this context, it's, you know, am I, am I using this opportunity to really ask if we are running our business efficiently, if we're focused on the most important thing, maybe some of those other distractions can wait, Ultimately, you may take a little bit of a more conservative approach to, to fueling growth in your company while you kind of ride out this period where it's difficult to gain access to capital. You may emphasize profitability earlier than, the, than you used to. And you also may go out of business. And that's not a, a referendum on you as a human. It's what happens in certain cycles in certain industries. I mean, you could have been the greatest restaurateur ever, but you may have gone out of business during the pandemic. And so I think separating your sense of self-worth and self-love from how your business is doing or what its value per share is, if you haven't done that, you should start doing that because no matter how successful you are, there's always that next thing. There's always that next part of that. If your total sense of identity is wrapped up in that, you're eventually not going to achieve that next thing and you're going to feel rotten. So you, you have to work on kind of managing your own psychological landscape with regard to these types of environments. That's fantastic advice. And if 
you struggle with that, there's always a reservation at North, right? To go, <laughs> to go, to go eat. So They'll happily uh, Brian, put you in the Brian table. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Brian, thanks so much. This is fantastic. Where can our listeners follow what you're up to with Ibotta? Yeah, I post a lot about leadership and Ibotta on LinkedIn. I'm not really on social media. Otherwise, I do podcasts. I'm on Twitter. But yeah, love to have folks reach out. I try to do my best to sort of give back in the way that folks invested in me here in the Denver community. And if I haven't met you, I'm sure I will soon. Thanks so much.